Hello and welcome back to our podcast. So glad that you have decided to spend this time with us as we dive in again to the book of Deuteronomy. My name's Cameron. G'day, I'm Ken. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Lock, before we get into our discussion today, uh, we've had some feedback and a very interesting comment from one of our listeners. Yeah, that's right. So um, Jamie has written in and pointed out back when a few weeks ago we were talking about Moses and we picked up this idea of Moses, you know, not being not being allowed in sort of quotes into the promised land and the the overly simplistic version of the story, which is just simply because he he lost his temper and hit a rock when he was meant to talk about talk to the rock. And we we explored that and noticed that there was a little bit more to it. There was um claiming in some sense it sort of seemed to be claiming power there was this issue of of trust and and we noted that in actual fact the problem exhibited in that particular episode by Moses is sort of the same problem as the Israelites in general had suffered that caused them to be told you you shall not but your descendants will enter the promised land so the conclusion we sort of reached was that Moses suffered from the same problem as the rest of the Israelites who didn't make it in, and he gets the same result. And Jamie has pointed out that actually we didn't quite take that far enough. There's a really interesting extension, and I'm just going to read a little bit here. Um, the experience of Moses makes even more sense when we see him as a type of Christ. Um, I'm reminded of the prophetic words of Isaiah 53. We considered him stricken by God, cut off from the land of the living. He was numbered with the transgressors. And, and Jamie points out that back in Exodus 32, 32, Moses has already voiced the idea of being, of bearing the sins of the people. Uh, and so it's kind of, it's kind of a type of Christ's ministry here where, where Moses says, well, I'm not getting into the promised land because of you. And I thought that was actually a really good and valuable insight that, that we had genuinely missed in our enthusiasm for, for what, whatever it was we were discussing in that episode. I'd like to respond to that in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is to say um, we should always be looking for Christ in the Scriptures uh, and, and yeah. wonderful to have that pointed out. Of course, uh, at the end of a long week, uh, having said there were two things, the second one is completely gone. <laughs> well, the first one there was a very valid point, Ken, and I think it is it is a good reminder. And The second point's reoccurred to me, uh, and it is this. Um, uh, it arises out of the suggestion that Moses uh, bore the sins of the people uh, in the way that Christ uh, bore our sins. And I think the representative nature of human experience is something that needs to be remembered. Um, uh, so uh, Christ, of course, uh, bore our sins. Uh, he is our representative. Uh, he mediates uh, for us, um, all of those things. Um, uh, but we all uh, represent uh, other people and we all bear uh, burdens uh, of others uh, without, I hope, being too egotistical about it. I spent much of my life uh, representing other people, uh, standing uh, in a courtroom uh, and for all the world, including to the judge, uh, I was my client. Uh, indeed, when I made submissions and the judge gave reasons, the judge would say uh, the defendant or the plaintiff uh, said uh, or submitted. Well, they actually didn't do anything uh, in that situation. That was, it was the words that I spoke uh, 
that were that. And and we all have that. That was the particular peculiar experience of being a, 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 a lawyer and an advocate. Um, uh, but we all do that uh, in our own ways. We all represent families. We all represent um, uh, uh, other people. Um, and uh, we, we bear things uh, for other people. Mm. And that is sometimes a very onerous thing. And sometimes it excludes us from things that mm. we would desire uh, for ourselves. It is, yeah. in that way, a Christly uh, call uh, to represent others. Mm. As you've said that, Ken, it's made me think of an analogy I've used actually sometimes before, and I hope that this doesn't um, draw what's quite a good idea down too low, but um, soccer, football clubs. I lived for a few years working in Germany. The Germans take their football very seriously. One of the things that happens in a football club if the club is not performing all that well in the competition is often that the that the coach will be sacked, <laughs> and I used to often remark to my friends, "What? How? How sure are we that it's the coach's fault?" <laughs> mm. But the there's a sense, there's a symbolic sense, there's a sense in which the club is saying something isn't working here. We need to change what we're doing, and so the visible symbolic representation of that change is we're going to fire the coach and we're going to hire a, a new coach. I, I've used this as an analogy sometimes when, you know, um, sometimes there's organizations, maybe even universities who find themselves not doing quite as well in the competition, which is usually the financial marketplace. We, yeah, and they fire large, undergrad, uh, they fire postgraduate students usually. Well, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Or, or in recent times, they, they fire a bunch of, of senior academics and professors. But what I'm saying they should do is fire the vice chancellors. <laughs> if, well, the, the point that I'm making is what, what we do with football is on the one hand extremely arbitrary and unfair, but on the other hand, it's the, it's the power of the representation. One of the other ideas that came out in uh, uh, just last week's episode was that we... As Seventh-day Adventists, at least, and I think many Christian denominations, although they have different interpretations of which laws are important, believe themselves to follow all of God's law. I don't think there are any, is any denomination who thinks that God wants something and isn't trying to do it. Uh, so, But Adventists in particular seem to be very fond about this idea of following the whole law and being real, true, yeah, discerning being the people, people of the book. Being the people of the book, and one of the one of the things we mentioned was that um, none of none of the people from this part of the book, if they were to see how we live, would recognise us as followers of the same God, as them. Hmm. Not just different in one or two areas, but but different in all. And and last week we talked a lot about the particular place of worship being important. Um, we have some particular views about uh, diet. And I thought it would just before we move on to Deuteronomy 15, which has some passages that definitely demand our attention, I thought we should cast our eyes down Deuteronomy 14 and just see, we're not going to read the whole passage, but uh, is there anything that, that jumps to mind? I mean, it gets into clean and unclean food, but it doesn't start with clean and unclean food. It starts with advice on what to do with, your, with haircuts. Yeah. Um, do, do not cut... Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. Yeah. <laughs> I don't Does the front of the head include the face? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. I had a haircut the other day. 
Um, and yeah. uh, uh, he said, uh, a number two up the side. And I said, yeah, and I want a hard part. Uh, and before I could say anything, uh, he got the razor out and um, uh, shaved off at number two right up to the point of the part. Now, I didn't necessarily intend that. I then went to have lunch with one of my colleagues and he said, what's with the mohawk? Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's the modern good, style. Good. Yeah. Well, as long as it wasn't the front of the head. Yeah, I'll be all right. And I didn't do it for the (laughs) dead. That's good. Um, Okay, these are the animals you can eat. The ox, sheep, goat, the deer, gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. In fact, any animal that has a split hoof and that chews the cud. And there's 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 an interesting anomaly here. It... it, uh, there's some that you can't eat, like the camel, the rabbit, or the coney. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a split hoof. And I'd like to just point out that this is a, an inaccuracy because rabbits do not chew cud. Mm. They don't have the multiple stomachs. They don't eat food and then regurgitate it and chew it again. What they do is they poo it out and then they eat it again. And that's the way that they get the... Because grass is so unnutritious, it has to pass through twice. And um, if anyone's had a pet rabbit, they'll know that you're not meant to collect the droppings at least too rigorously because rabbits get all the nutrient of their food the second time they eat it so uh i'm not sure what that speaks to in terms of the the reliability of the bible it doesn't seem (laughs) to challenge me very much but i thought it was worth pointing out Mm. i think the end that uh, of chapter 14 is interesting the tithes um be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce um and Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the first burn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Yeah, but Ken, Ken, sometimes you can't get to that place. In verse 24, it says, if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord and so you've got tithe, but you can't carry it (laughs) to the place of the Lord's... So if you've got too much, if he's blessed you too much... Mm. Then then you must exchange your tithe, that's crops and actual physical food, you must exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place where the Lord, because the silver is easier to carry. Yeah. The mm. same monetary value. And when you get there, you use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, is what it says in the NIV, uh, or anything you wish, an aeroplane. And then you and your household shall eat. Okay, well, not an aeroplane. Um, although no, someone did pe- tell me the other day that there's a Guinness World Record held by a man who ate a Cessna 182. Oh, <laughs> right. In, in very small pieces, yes. ground up. Um, okay, so, but do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance, so you make sure that you give some to the Levites. I mean, speaking to your point, Cam, there's a lot of, there's a lot of detail here in the law that we, we feel is, well, it certainly feels pretty irrelevant. It probably even feels a bit quaint and, and unusual, really. Well, um, but some of it's taken really seriously. So just before the tithes, you know, the Deuteronomy 14 verse 21 contains the instruction here, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And there's all sorts of things that have been written and thought about this. And, and you know, there's a certain sense of cruelty of using the life-giving milk to cook a goat that has been slaughtered. But uh, even today, a an Orthodox Jew will not eat meat and dairy in the same meal, right? It's not necessarily the young goat in its own mother's milk, but it's too risky because how do you know? Mm. 
I do feel like if it was a young goat in cow's milk, you're pretty safe. <laughs> well, well, the the point is though that that obviously, well, I guess that what I'm alluding to is the idea that for some people, who who in all earnestness of their of their quest to be law followers of law abiding followers of God, they're they're too nervous to eat a goat cooked in cow's milk, Luke, mm. because because of the risk of breaking this particular rule. And then it's uh, the, okay. So Adventists might say, "Well, probably better to be vegetarian and not eat the young goat at all." But, but the the point that I'm making is exactly the one that Cameron was making at the start, which is our attitudes towards this rule, whether whether we're vegetarian or not, our attitudes towards this rule are almost certainly unrecognizable as as be as as God following attitudes mm. for the people that were first listening to this. It'd be interesting to try and create a modern parallel for that verse to try and work extract the essential meaning, because <laughs> because at least when we get to the verses on the tithes, it's not just that they're a bit quaint or outdated. It's the underlying sort of philosophy of what tithing means. Mm. We I was always taught, and I maintain still that one of the important aspects of tithe is doing without sometimes we don't know whether the money will be used well sometimes we're not told exactly how it is used and this is true not only of the church but charities and other other areas but there's an element to which even if it were misspent even if you gave it to someone in good faith for them to use to improve the world and further god's work and it were embezzled um, that there's some spiritual value at least from your end in the in the rigor of of training yourself not to be selfish mm. that sort of enforced discipline but and so I, I maintain that that's a good a good emphasis but the emphasis here is quite different the emphasis here is that uh, the tithe is to be spent and consumed by the local community in a, they're having a good time they're like mm. they're like going 10 pin bowling and i don't know you know holding a barbecue for everyone in the neighborhood mm. That's that seems to be the sort of picture that's conjured up by this passage about tithe. Mm. Well, we did we did talk last week about how that that concept of tithe that we're reading about is a sort of is a sort of equalizer in that it it could do a bit of both of what you're talking about, Cam. In that for those who are well off, and it's worth pointing out at this point that all of us on this call and most of us in this country by global standards and by historical standards, are insanely wealthy. Yeah, if you are well off, then it absolutely is an element to to it of of self-sacrifice or, or, or going without or being reminded of the circumstances of others because you're contributing more to the feast than you are receiving. But at the yeah, same good, time, I love that. For, those, for those on the other end of the scale, they are receiving more than they're contributing. But they're still contributing something. But they are still contributing something. And it's still being used to benefit everyone. Yeah. Mm. That's a good that's a good picture. We don't need to stop this topic of conversation. Into Deuteronomy 15, it continues. And Deuteronomy 15 starts with a description of the sabbatic year, every seven years, so a Sabbath of years. And again, this is another one, Cam, that's fascinating because Adventists are so proud of our focus on sabbath a weekly sabbath and yet um i don't believe that the sabbatical year concept has ever featured particularly strongly within the denomination it's because we've expected christ to come 
There's no point planning 50 years in the front. Well, in okay. Front. Yeah, perhaps that's true. But but had we planned, had we planned, we would have had several sabbatical years by now. Well, yeah, but remember that the 50 years is the special jubilee. That's the Sabbath of sabbatical years. Oh, yes. There is still yeah, just yeah, yeah. the... He, here in Deuteronomy 15, it's talking about every seven years. And in fact, um, where was it? I think it was on Adventist Today recently. There was a video posted that was... Um, because it's just been Jewish New Year. And I think we're just coming into a, a sabbatic year on the Jewish calendar. So so for the Jews, they're just entering one of these sabbatic years. And there was a really interesting, I guess you'd call it sermon, uh, um, a, a, a presentation delivered by a um, female Jewish rabbi. And she was talking about what what does it mean in our context to have a sabbatic year, a year of a kind of year of, of no work. You know, in this year, you leave your fields to lie fallow, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. And that's essentially resting from your income for 12 months. Uh, it's a fairly substantial idea if you try and do a just a, a direct translation across to it's long service know, 2021 leave. Australia. It's long service leave. <laughs> yeah. Long long service leave is I endorsed long service by scripture. Leave was a year off every seven well, years. Yes. I think I think that all employees of the church should be given one year off every seven. Well, I mean, it would be pretty biblical. But what's interesting, the reason that I'm saying that this is connected to the theme we were just talking about, have a look at um, Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 7. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. This is really closely connected. It's not the same thing, but it's really closely connected, isn't it, to the um, the tithe being... Remember the Levites. They don't have an inheritance or an allotment of their own. So share it with them. And it's definitely calling us to a... um. To an outward focus. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of a quote lock in the book Leaf by Niggle, which I'm indebted to Luke for, for bringing. Niggle is always trying to get things done. Um, and he's always never getting exactly as much done as he wants to get done. Because it's all sorts of frustrating and annoying people that keep imposing upon him for time. And he's trying to paint this picture and it's people who interrupt him all the time. And... Uh, one of the things it says that inhibits him from getting his work done, uh, Tolkien says, is that he was kind-hearted in a way. And then he says, uh, you know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing mostly to himself. I think that's, <laughs> uh, that, that is such a, that strikes so close to home for me. Uh, <laughs> hmm. That's 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 a description of me, it, perhaps minus the swearing, uh, the. But I guess if you're grumpy, it doesn't make much difference whether you're using swear words or not. The sentiment's the same. Um, so uh, yeah, compare that description to this description. Be open-handed, uh, freely lend to whoever needs. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. Mm. 
right? Because if you give someone something close to this sabbatic year and they owe it, they owe it back to you. And then they get, get to the seventh year and all of the debts are canceled and they say, oh, I don't know that back. We've renewed, we've reset. And then you feel like you've lost out. And it's specifically saying, you know, don't harbor that, mm. that thought. Um, uh, to me, it doesn't matter how many times you could go blue in the face and you could write all of the ink in the world writing admonitions not to harbor that thought and it's people are going to harbor that thought yeah but at least it's identified as a wicked thought yeah. <clears throat> which is the point and it it goes on ken what was the verse you were looking at earlier because this this talking about the poor and yeah verse 11 verse 11 there will always be poor people in the land pause there um you'll remember jesus and somebody might be able to remind me of where it is. He made that very statement. He said, the poor will always be with you, or you will always have the poor with you. Um, Ken, Ken, just wait, pause. Uh, In verse 4, we skipped verse 4. So verse 4 comes prior to this. Ah, Verse 4, it says, I'm glad you're picking this up. However, there should be no poor among you, in verse 4. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So... It, it shouldn't happen. And you can imagine God saying, but I, I know how human societies operate. Yeah. Well, in, <laughs> indeed, he says that very thing in verse 5. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today, there should be no mm. poor. If only you do all of these. Now, that's a big if, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's like I do this all the time with the with the grade sevens, uh, when I teach them. I say if you can work well in groups, you you're allowed to work in groups. But if I notice that people are getting off task, I'll I'll introduce a few minutes of silence. I've never never said that without having to introduce a few minutes of silence. Usually after about half an hour, they can last for twenty minutes or half an hour. And it's it's really predictable. You could set a, a watch on it. <laughs> But this is interesting, Ken, because the Jesus, Jesus's use of this phrase I've heard referred to much more frequently than back here in Deuteronomy, and I've often heard it used in the sense of kind of oh well, um, like there's always going to be the poor. It can become an excuse, and I think sometimes is used as an excuse. Ah, oh, you know, there's nothing really you can do about it. It's kind of just the way the world yeah. is. Yeah. Well, Christ uses it in that context almost. He says, well, he says yeah, all right. blah, 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 blah. As in, <laughs> careful. <laughs> I would dispute that that was Christ's intended meaning. I think he's no. misquoted in that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What Christ is saying here is, because um, it's in the context, isn't it, of the of the lady who spills the, the perfume on his feet? Yes. And Judas says that should have been given to the poor. And mm. Christ says, well, the poor will always be with you. Is, am I... Is that a correct? No, no, you're right. You're right. That's correct. And and what what Christ is saying is that there is a particular one-off, once in the life of the universe event happening right now, Mm -hmm. which is which has which has a a particularly unique significance. Um, At all other times in the history of the universe, you are to take notice of the poor, but on this on this one occasion, with something highly unique and special, um, the woman. did the right thing. Christ would certainly have known the context of that verse when he quoted it. And the context is, Ken. Ah. <laughs> I thought... <laughs> I thought I was throwing it back to you. <laughs> okay, I've got, I've got the throwback. Uh, this is it. It's not that, therefore, there's nothing you can do. 
Uh, it's not that therefore, well, you should feel bad about that, um, but just recognize that the world is as the world is. Um, it is this, therefore, I command you, uh, not I encourage you, it'd be a good idea to do this every now and again if you think you possibly can, um, uh, to be open-handed with your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Now, what a hmm. wonderful picture that is. Open that, that contrast between the tight-fisted that you should not be and the open-handed that you are. You, you, you can't keep something in an open hand. Uh, certainly not uh, notes, um, money, monetary notes. <laughs> um, they don't stay in an open hand. Uh, look, I'll be confess and say that is very challenging. Mm. I fear with good reason it's, that it's I'm a very... much more tight-fisted than I am open-handed. It's, it's, it's a very relevant um, <clears throat> topic because I just have uh, been having conversations recently at work on this particular topic. Um, in, the, in the NGO context, it's called donor fatigue. Hmm. So donors tend to... There, there, there's a tendency... People will... People, I think, are generally very generous. Humans are. But mm. they want to give money to something they perceive to be important. And the reality is that what people perceive to be important is often pretty inaccurate, right? So you get a big flood of donations when a major disaster occurs um, for an immediate response. But six months later, when you really need the money to do rebuilding or, you know, exactly the same six months earlier when you really needed the money to prepare for a possible disaster, no one was interested to give anything. Um, mm. So they give to what, what they perceive to be important, important problems. Um, and then they also, people also want to see the money is doing something useful. Now. Oh, Luke, I know where this is going. People expect what I'm, what I teach to be useful. When is it going to be useful? When is it going to be useful? When has any human ever succeeded in in being able to predict the use of anything with absolute hundred percent certainty? It's a it's a very good um, understanding to have that we do not know what will be useful in the future. Um, the the problem in this context specifically comes when people confuse what NGOs define as useful to mean fixing the failed state that the NGO is working mm -hmm. in for example. So they go, oh, this country is still in absolute turmoil. Why should I give more money to it? Yeah. Right? Because you're not fixing the country. The country's not fixed. The problem keeps yeah, occurring. The it's, like, it's like throwing, yeah, the government's corrupt, so it's throwing money in a hole. The problem is, the actual reality is that the NGO money was never going to fix the country. You give money to an NGO to help people, and people are most in need when the country is broken, mm. right? Mm. So the time, the time, and the circ, and, and and then uh, the longer it drags out, a, a state of emer an emergency or or, or a situation with a, a failed government or a civil war or any of these sort of crises, the longer mm. they drag out, the less inclined people are to give to them because oh, it's just a waste of money. It's an unsolvable mm. problem. All the rest of it. The tragedy of that is that the longer it drags out. The more need there more is, than the more individuals are suffering. The more good the money actually does, but people are not mm. willing to give because they mm. 
misperceive what is actual usefulness. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, it is right to try and solve the problem, but there there are plenty of times when the the, the most important thing is to alleviate the pain. Well, there's there's many times when all all you can do is alleviate the pain. Mm. And we do that with medical treatments. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is that's exactly what this passage is saying. There will always be poor people. The fact that you are not solving this problem ought not stop you from trying to solve it. Mm. Or or mm. not stop you from from investing from your resources from from helping those in need. Look, I was reminded, although I think I didn't know the term, but I think it's a very good one about donor fatigue. I got a a little glossy publication by Adrian in my letterbox this week. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, I wonder how much money this costs to produce and distribute. You know, I'll I'll give to Adrian without the glossy magazine. And then I stopped myself and I thought, actually, I actually haven't thought about Adra for the last three months. It's been since I got the last glossy magazine. And this... This turning up in my mailbox has made me think again yeah. of, the, of the problem. That's exactly why they need to send out these magazines. Um, <laughs> it's yep, because it just paid for itself. <laughs> it just paid for itself because, much as I would like to think myself the sort of person who doesn't need poking in the ribs to give to to a good chat, I absolutely need poking in the ribs when I'm worried about work and school and all the other problems and the car that's broken down and you know the things that are really immediate and close to me i i need i need i i'm all for extra glossy publications um if it can help me to to try and live up to my own ideals a little better well i'm happy for the glossy publications but i'm gonna be frank and say when i get a phone call from a charity that i give to regularly uh, it actually makes me want to donate less. Um, uh, don't ring me. Uh, I will do it in my own good time. The problem is, I think, Cam, like you, uh, I don't do it in my own good time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be interesting if we did, just I don't know, it's an experiment, um, adopt some uh, adopt for a brief amount of time a small portion of church tithe in in reflecting this sort of you hmm. know we're going to do something that builds local community for everyone so do you mean i only have to open yeah. my fist for a short time <laughs> and then i well, can close and, it again <laughs> when you said when you said that can you were close fisted more often than open handed um I thought my tongue-in-cheek response was, well, it's possible to keep one fist closed and the other hand open. <laughs> so, well, I think that's... And, and of course and, we... No, but we're instructed not to let the left hand know what the right <laughs> Spot on, is Lock, spot on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I beat you to that one by half a second, Ken. <laughs> I, I like this idea, too, that there ought not be any poor among you, mm. but there, there will always be poor among you. And the, the, the key point that you drew out there for us, Ken, is that what ought our response be? Is our response to say, oh, it's always going to be there? No, the, coupled with the first, the ideal state is established in verse 4. There shouldn't be any poor people among you. So if there is, which will always be the case, what you're looking at is something less than ideal. You should be distressed by it. Not complacent, it's the exact opposite because the the passage has gone out of its way to explain the way things ought be. And it's like if you're walking into a room and there's a crooked picture on the wall. I don't know if anyone else has the experience of 
being concerned by that and wanting to just straighten it. We Every time we see things the way they shouldn't be, our natural inclination should be to try and make it better. Mm. Uh, just talk to any secondary school English teacher. Um, they get nervous twitches every time they see an apostrophe put in the wrong place. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a good sort of attitude to have when it comes to social injustice. We, when we see people in dire straits, that's not the way it should be. And so our mm. instinctive response should be, I will use my resources to try and help that person because what's happening isn't right. Well, that's, that's a, really, a really good summary and a really important point. If I could, at the risk of, of seeming flippant, after such an important point, I have found my attention wander to Deuteronomy 15 and verse 16 and 17. And I find myself startled by the description of what's happening. So leading into this, starting in verse 12, it's it's talking about the implications of this sabbatic year for um, slaves. So if if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve for six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock. So this is this exact idea we've been talking about again, open-handedness. It might as well be called the year of generosity as much as it's called the sabbatical year. And in fact, I wonder if that is yet again reminding us of a bit of what the Sabbath is even meant to be all about. But what's remarkable is, verse 16, but if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, this is the bit that startled me, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. He's not going to get very far either. <laughs> no, that's a that's a pivotal part, Locke, of the story of um, Ben-Hur in the book. Um, right. Than the films. Is that one of the characters that Ben-Hur um, meets after he's escaped from his Roman galley and whatever, is a servant of his father who had his... The ear pierced because he loved he loved one of his father's servant girls who who had her ear pierced. She was a servant for life, and mm. wouldn't marry this guy unless he also did that. And so, as an act of love for this girl, he he had his ear pierced and became a, a servant to Ben Hur's father. And on that basis, remains faithful and true to Ben Hur in Ben Hur's exile. I see. Um, but it comes out in another place, like it's Psalm forty, and this might be a it's an not where we were thinking of referencing or ending up, but I think it, there's some really interesting um, sort of picking up of this motif. And the only reason I know this is because of an excellent rendition of this psalm by the sons of Korah. And there's a reference to this in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Uh, the verse I'm wanting is, later on, uh, verses 6. Sacrificing an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Hmm. Hmm. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Um, then I said, here I am, I've come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So the imagery there is of committing to be a servant for life of God. Yeah. To uh-huh. love God and your family. Now, isn't that interesting to take back to yeah. our discussion about the greatest command of all? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is interesting. And he says at the end of the psalm, he says, Please, O Lord, be pleased to save me. Come quick to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. So the the sort of tone here in the psalm is, God, I, I've given my entire life to you. Mm. Mm. And the... Mm. The 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 owner of the slave or the servant who had the ear pierced by piercing that ear of that servant, you are not just claiming the the services of that servant for the rest of their life, but you were you were acknowledging yourself to be responsible for their well being. Yep. And the and the psalmist here is saying, God, I you pierced my ear. We went we went through this process, and I've committed myself to you, and I'm in a lot of trouble now. So you need to come and help me out. Wouldn't it be interesting if the New Testament era had adopted or followed that particular ritual instead of baptism? The church would have a, a different attitude towards piercings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cam, you're right. I think that's a that's a that's a really interesting point to to wrap up on. Um, we we can acknowledge, so we can we can commit ourselves to God in that way. And then also picking up on this this theme, the poor will always be among you and your responsibility or God's God's command to issue blessings to them. Of course, that's that's a pretty dramatic reminder to us all that in, in many significant ways we are the poor and that it God is the one who is being open handed to us, not mm. closed fisted or tight fisted. Mm. Um and and perhaps that closes the circle back in a full sense. We we were reminded by the the email comment that came in that we can we can look for Christ and for even some of these big pictures even amongst them the details of Deuteronomy and I, I feel as if we may have found a good one yeah uh, we're very grateful for the comments that we receive and uh, I thought that, that one we we talked about today was a ripper uh, as always if you have anything you wish to say any any questions any comments any admonitions. Um, any scathing criticisms, they can be emailed to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for joining our discussion, and we hope you join us again next week.